0: Happy birthday, yes too, only one will not do. Born again means salvation, how many have you? Okay, and then our last song is going to be Psalm 117. Uh, okay. Oh praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise Him, all ye people, for His merciful kindness back over to adult singing. Okay, kids can go to the
1: class. And Isaac, I think you did an awesome job. Thank you. All right, our last song we're going to sing is 394. And again, this song reaches in to some high range. So if you can hit those, and I know a lot of you can. So help us out there. 394, Blessed Assurance. assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Every My Savior, all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture, now person on my side,
2: to everyone. I don't know uh, if you know me, but my name is Steve Price. I haven't been here in a while. In fact, the uh, last, since August um, 20th, I've been traveling every weekend. And uh, the last time I could be here on a Sunday morning was the second weekend of September. So I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> and uh, by the grace of God, we will begin a series today that my fellow elders have graciously allowed me to consume the next multiple Sundays, as well as some Wednesday evenings for this series. But um, one of the things that happens when you travel a lot, and I think I'm on, is it coming through? Okay. Okay. Is that you begin to miss everybody so badly. And, uh, I just wanted to say a few things by just introduction. Um, I really miss the chapel. I missed every one of you. I carry the address book with me, the little yellow one, because I go through and I pray for you by name. I miss, uh, I miss being here on Wednesdays. I miss being here on Sundays. I miss doing the visitation that would be done during the week. And um, one of the things that I think of this Thanksgiving weekend is just how grateful I am for this assembly, for this church, for everyone that comes and those who visit and those who have hung in there through all of the hard times and soft times and good times and bad times. I'm very grateful to the Lord for you. I just wanted to tell you that. I want you to know I personally invite every single one of you and your friends, your enemies, your families, your cats, your dogs, I don't care, just come to the Christmas party. It'll be at our house next Saturday, Friday evening at 7 and just know the warmth that we would like to share as a family of God together. Okay. I've really missed you. I wanted to open that way because um, the series that we're going to begin today is a series on the churches of, the Re- of Revelation. And so we'll look at the first three chapters of Revelation. And the series is designed to go, I forget how many sessions we have, but somewhere around eight to nine sessions together. And you know I'm already going to tell you that's not enough, but we'll try to fit it in. The reason why this is a big one for me is because it was about 30 years ago we were in the old building over there at Medcalf and and uh, uh, Floyd, 62nd and Floyd. None of you except the Barnes were here then. Maybe Mr. Rockhold and Janet and I. Oh, the Wortmans were there too. Well, I, I was thinking before that. Yeah, but you guys moved. So there's a few, but we were going through some really, really hard times then. It was, um, it was, it was such a hard time. We had no elders. We had no leadership. We were governed by a business meeting that decided to care for the flock by having a pastoral committee. Everything that I just said is extra biblical. It's not in the Bible. And so the committee made up of three of us, and Rob Kerr and I were part of that committee. And we were charged to care for the flock in some way, and we were just totally dumbfounded about what to do. So we went, uh, they had an elders conference, a workers and elders conference in Wichita. It was at um, where Westside used to be. The other place, and we went there, and uh, Rob and I came back, and we were we were totally stricken. We didn't know what to do. Our, our, we we didn't have any organization. People would come, people would go. There was no doctrinal teaching. There was nothing, and we didn't have any kids program. We had nothing. We just had nothing. Sunday school, nothing. And we said uh, we got together with Don Harrington. And we began to pray. And out of those prayer meetings, we started a series. You know what series that was? Churches on Revelation. That was 30 years ago. And I can tell you that that series single handedly changed our entire assembly. So we want to revisit it. Not because we need to, we're in bad shape like that. It's just, it was where it all began for us. It's what's happened to us over the last three decades, and now you're here. New generations, generations that didn't know what was going on. Erickson's know, the Wortman's know, the Barnes know, Bob Rockhold, Janet and I know. But those were some hard times, and that one series was so transforming because we approached it with this one question what kind of letter did the lord write me what kind of what kind of information what kind of words would he say to me if he wrote me a letter and that's how we approached it we had all kinds of criticisms One fellow said it's the worst series we've ever done. Of course, they hadn't had a series in like 30 years, so I don't know what we were being compared to. But you could tell the spiritual fight that was going on in that meeting. And by the grace of God, he used that series to transform us, to lead us to study Christ in the book of John, to lead us to study Christ in the book of Hebrews. And all of a sudden, the Christ that we love so much who we had very carefully through our own flesh and our own uh, jealousies and anger and envy who was pushed outside of our, our gathering was now suddenly welcomed back in. And we saw God change us in a way that I can only only describe to you in feeble words. You see, this is where it started. So when we talk about this series, it's very personal for me. And I want it to be personal for you. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we come to this hour, we want to ask your blessing on the word of God. We want to ask you to just take your word and weave it in, this, in the fabric of every man, woman, child, souls today. We want to ask you to put your blanket over the next multiple weeks that we have together and that we would see the fruit of the Spirit come through our lives. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to do this series, we're going to have to go through chapter 1 first and then we'll do chapter 2 and 3. And as you know, the seven churches of Revelation are in chapters 2 and 3. But we would do a, a disservice to the text if we did not look in chapter 1. So we'll look in chapter 1 probably both this morning and some Wednesday. And this will be an ongoing series. It'll be Sundays and Wednesdays. We'll take it all the way through um, the first Sunday and possibly uh, second Wednesday, possibly, of January. So I just want you to know the lay of the land, and don't be surprised if we don't get through everything in one one meeting now, when you look at chapter 1, you're going to be introduced to, to uh, uh, two people. And the first person you're going to be introduced to is a servant. His name is John. And the second person you're going to be introduced to is the Savior. His name is Jesus. And the third person you're going to be introduced to is just like the second person, except the title we'll use, is the Son of Man. So you'll be seeing two people. You'll be seeing John first and two reflections of Jesus Christ, one under the title Savior and one under the title Son of Man. And that's how we're going to approach this. And it's very important we we lay this, set this table correctly, or else it'll be hard for us to get through the rest of the meal. So I would like you to turn to the book of Revelation, and I'd like you to... Uh, begin reading with me in the first chapter I'll make some, a few more introductory comments about the book of Revelation itself and then we'll start to unpack the text paragraph by paragraph. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads those, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I'll stop right there. Let's just go over some background information as we get into the discussion of the book. Uh, As you notice right off the bat that the author is the Apostle John. It is thought that he is the only surviving apostle who was not martyred. He was uh, tortured severely. He apparently died uh, after his years of torture in Ephesus, according to church tradition. Anytime a speaker says church tradition, that means we really don't know. But it sounds better if we say that, right? So church tradition. Now, the place that it was written, the origination of the letter, was on an island called Patmos. It'll say that later in the text. Many of you know that island is about 60 miles offshore from the city of Ephesus. Um, many of you will notice that, or know from church history, that John was banished there. Apparently, uh, he had torture that was uh, um, leveled against him, and then he was moved off to an uh, outer island of the empire of Rome so that he could uh, apparently live out his days in isolation. Um, so his uh, time there is when this letter, this revelation, was given to him through the Spirit of God. And John actually introduces that in this introduction, where we meet John the servant as the one who is the testifier, the one who is the eyewitness of all that is being that will be documented. Now, the purpose of this letter, of this document, of the Book of Revelation, was a document written during a severe time of church persecution. It was around the time of Domination who made it a point to persecute the Christians in a bit of a more broad scale level. So you're talking the end of 85 AD to around 95 AD. And this particular letter written during that intensive time of persecution um, paints a big swath of, of what would happen in the end. And so the book of Revelation has a real sense of of, um, of not only explaining the roadmap but bringing comfort to the people who are being persecuted at that time. And so this letter has a tremendous, tremendous purpose. And one of the great things that people like to speak about when we talk about the book of Revelation is this: "I read the end, we win." And although that is very cliche, it's very true. It's very true. So I think that will be a tremendous comfort for us today. Now, you should know there's a couple of approaches to the book of Revelation. I will mention them here just for your information and edification. There is what we call the preterist view. That always sounded weird to me, like somebody's being a predator. That's not the same word. This is the preterist view. Now, what this means is is that they viewed the book of Revelation as already being filled. All the history in it is already being fulfilled, by the time of John's writings, all right? Now, I find that a very difficult opinion to hold based on not only the text itself, but also the history. But that is one particular view that's held about the churches of Revelation. The second view that you find there is what they call the historical view. And this view is, state, is, is meant to describe... Um, uh, that the church, the, the letters to the churches of revelation are describing church history over the next several thousands of millennia of years. And so, yeah, so that people will say, well, the, the, uh, um, uh, history of the Church of Ephesus seemed to go up to around 300 AD and they will match different church, um, the Christianity, Christendom's atmosphere with these churches over time, all the way up into what we, what many would call today the Laodicean Church Age. And although that is, uh, certainly has some merit, certainly has some things to think about, uh, one of the things that I think is missed is what if the Lord wrote you a letter? what would it sound like? Because these were real churches and real situations with real problems and real issues. And the Lord Jesus was authoring directly letters through the pen of the Apostle John so that he would address those particular issues so that we would have timeless lessons to learn from timeless moments of time that we could stop and say, that's what was going on in the church of Smyrna. What about the church here at uh, at the Bible Chapel of Shawnee? And so that's how we're going to approach it. Now, there's a, fi- a final one a futuristic view which defines things to come. That would be the rest of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 22. And that there, my friend, is exactly uh, what the, the rest of the book talks about. Now, what are, what else are we going to say about the book? Well, let's, let's get into the text itself. I want to introduce you to the first person of interest today, and it's the Apostle John, the servant. And if you notice, go back to your reading, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show His servants. Notice it's plural, right? Things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it to his, by his angel to his servant John. So he's saying two things in this verse. The first thing he says is, this message is coming directly from Jesus Christ, and it's meant for the large body of servants, which I think would entail all those churches that he's going to mention in verse, in chapters two and chapter three. Now, secondly, he's saying it's being communicated by a singular person, right? and that would be uh, the angel sent from God. And who does he talk to? Well, he talks to John. The bond servant. And that's all that is in verse one. So we're just getting, uh, how this is coming about, uh, that it's, uh, really legitimate. It's not somebody doing LSD and trying to come up with visions. That this is a very legitimate type of thing that happened to John. And John is just being, a uh, matter of factly honest about it all. So that there would be no sort of, uh, 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 how do we say, uh, uh, uh tainted, um, taintedness to this document. That it is truly Truly has integrity. Now, John then gives his credentials. Look at verse two, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. You know what he's saying? He says, I'm only telling you what I saw with my physical own eyes and I heard with my physical own ears. Now, this is not the first time that this apostle uses that kind of language to Kind of authenticate his credentials. He did the same thing in the first and the and the epistle First John when he said this, and I'll read it to you. It's only a few pages back. He says in verse one of chapter one, First John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have now noticed how he did the same thing with measuring the authenticity of it all, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, our hands have handled, every every physical sense that we have, we use to measure the word of life, that's Jesus Christ, in this life was, in this, uh, uh, the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness, see that? declare and declare to you that eternal life which is with which was with the father and was manifested to us that which we have seen and heard and we declare to you and then we have fellowship and he mentions the son of god jesus christ so he's saying listen this this kind of thing where where we go to the point of of watching and observing and being right there with as the person who could testify of the accuracy of the information that's what i am that's what i'm doing now, you and I both know that the strongest piece of evidence in a court of law is the eyewitness. The eyewitness takes it away from circumstantial evidence to being somebody who was right there and saw the accident transact in front of them. And that's exactly what John is saying. I'm that guy. And I also notice this, that there is a blessing. So we have the recipient is John, who is communic- who's receiving it from God's angel. John is saying, I'm just, I'm, I'm just that eyewitness. I have no, I have nothing I'm trying to gain from this. And finally, the whole thing is it gives a blessing, and here's the blessing, or a fortunateness. And it says here, verse three, blessed is he who reads, hears, keeps. Did you notice those three verbs? Hears, or reads, hears, and keeps. This is a a kind of a principle from the Word of God. The Word of God is not meant to just be read, but reading is where it starts. Understanding what's in the Bible is the beginning. But it's more than that. It says you have to hear it. Now, that's a difference between reading something and hearing something. Today, if you ever watched uh, two people in, a, in kind of a, a disagreement, you might hear one of them say, I hear what you're saying. Now, what do they mean by that? It means I'm understanding what you've communicated. Your words are not just sounds phonetically. Your words actually have a measure of effect upon me. And this is, this is the key principle, that when you talk about the word of God, it's not so much that we want you to be increased with a bunch of knowledge. It's that we want the word of God to actually have a, a, a sort of um, internalization for yourself, That, that, oh, that's what God says. That means I, I have to react to that. I, I, I have to obey. He's describing me. That's called conviction. And in this study, I'm afraid you'll have moments of conviction. I certainly have. And in this study, these moments of conviction, you'll have two choices. You can reject the conviction you can forget the, or forget the conviction, or, and forget, reject or forget, or you can respond to the conviction. And when you respond to what God is speaking to your heart about, that's when you do something about it. And that's the last verb in the phrase, keep these words. It's, it's, it's all three. It's not just reading, it's not just hearing, but it's keeping. And that's true for any part of God's word. When you hear about Christ dying on the cross for your sins and rising again, it's just not knowing the information so I could send a test to you in the mail and you could pass it. No, it's where, wow, he's talking about me. You're now hearing it. And I need to do something about it. I put my faith in Jesus. That's keeping it. And that all three are necessary. Many a person comes to church. Many a person will attend church for years upon years and never hit all three. But all three are vital for the soul. All three are necessary for you to progress in the Christian life, to embark in the Christian life, and then progress in the Christian life. So it's a huge principle before we even even get to some of the important part of the text. Okay? All right, let's move on. So we've uh, talked to now, uh, we've introduced ourselves to the, son, the servant John. Now John's going to turn our focus over to the son uh, uh, to the Savior, and we're going to see that in the next um, paragraph where he introduces is what we call the salutation, the greeting. Look at what it says in verse four: John to the seven churches which are in Asia, so he's really writing to those seven persecuted places that you will see we'll talk about in chapters two and three. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, I read that deliberately and slowly because John is going to introduce us to this person, and we don't want to miss the Savior, because this is a revelation about Jesus Christ, the Savior. So we want to understand how he's being introduced. It'll set the tone for the rest of our discussion. Now, when you when you when you read it, you'll notice in verse four that John uses a typical greeting that is used back in that day of of any letter writing: grace and peace to you. Paul said it several times, and he also added uh, love in there once in a while. But the focus that you want to notice is that he is mentioning all three persons of the Trinity. Now, if you're not familiar with the Trinity, there's this idea that there are three, uh, three, but one. Not three gods, three persons, but one God. And that's kind of a mind bender because there's nothing on the planet that actually even comes close to sort of picture giving us a picture of that uh, and and we can try, but it's always an incomplete uh, model. Uh, um, but we have God, who is the Father, God, who is the Son, and God, who is what we call Spirit, meaning God in action, movement, making things happen. The Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the earth before creation. Now, each has, by using those titles, different roles, but one God. One God, not three gods, one God, one essence, three persons. Does that make sense? Of course, it doesn't make sense. It's very hard to understand. But you'll notice that they're going to be mentioned in this opening. Notice what it says here. Peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Who is that? Well, that's the Ancient of Days. That's the Father, right? Right? Now, you're going to see that Jesus will adopt that that line himself, but I think that's referring to the Father. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who's that? Well, the, the idea of seven spirits doesn't mean you have like seven little ghosts dancing around the room. The idea of seven in the Bible means that there's a real completeness of all the dimensions of God. It's all together in God and the Spirit. You have a reference of those seven ideas in the book of, I think it's Isaiah. Now, a point that he's making is John is saying this, this kind of thing we're going to talk about is from the very heart of the throne of God, God the Father, God the Spirit. And then notice he mentions Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. and He's going to expand on the identity of Jesus Christ in several ways. Jesus Christ, then he says the faithful witness, the faithful witness. What does that mean? Well, that means that he was a trustworthy communicator. Now, I don't know about you, but we just went through the elections. And I don't know about you, but after a while, I didn't know who to believe. Did you? You get one guy up there, and he starts talking about their opponent this way, and then the next guy says the exact opposite. And they all say, and I approve this message. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you wrote it. You know? You see, the point that I'm making is we value, we long for trusted communicators. And Jesus Christ is saying I am a trusted communicator. I am a faithful witness and I'm telling you what you can hear come from my lips are the kinds of words that you can base your life on. Jesus made this point several times in his earthly ministry. It comes out most prominently in the Gospel of John and he said, "You know, I am the way, the truth and the life." He's saying this is this is I'm I'm good for it. Now, that's in contrast to the Pharisees of his day. The Pharisees who had no record of being trustworthy, their only record was that of being a hypocrite. And Jesus pointed that out in Matthew chapter 23. So Jesus has said in contrast, and and, and John is pointing that out because he was eyewitness to the Lord Jesus. And he said, you know, of all the people that came across our paths, those three years we were together, Jesus was the real deal. And that's what he's saying. Some, some people in the world think Jesus is a lie, think he's a, he's a fake and a fraud. I would tell you, I've investigated those claims. I've never found Jesus to be a fake or a fraud or or anything like that. In fact, I think those claims are totally groundless, if not blatant lies. Jesus is identified as the faithful witness. Now he says he's first, it says his firstborn Firstborn from the dead. Now, when we say firstborn, in our uh mind that we have in our Western society, we always think of time. Oh, you came first. I wonder who was second. Who's second born? But in the in the Greco Roman mind, firstborn had nothing to do so much with time. In fact, when you study Greek verbs, there's only one uh two tenses that have much to deal with time. The second heiress in the future, or in the imperfect, excuse me, in the perfect and future. And so the point is, is that time is not so much what is in the mind of, the cultural mind of the thinker of, of, of Greece, of Rome. It was more of order. You know, the whole thing about Roman society was who's in order, who is general, who is emperor, who is in charge. And so the word firstborn his connotation is not so much about the time element as it is who is, who is the one that reigns above all. The firstborn, the one that has the highest honor. And so when he says firstborn from the dead, it's be speaking of him as having the highest honor. Now, it should bother you that he says firstborn from the dead. From the dead. Is, is it Possible that someone could actually be legitimately dead, body is lifeless, body has no breath, no heartbeat, no neuronal activity from the brain to the rest of the human anatomy, and then come back to life when it was bona fidely dead? Well, actually, physically speaking, it's impossible. Many of you know I've spent many years resuscitating bodies that people that have expired we're dismal on our successful rate our success rate but one time god enters the human race and that's what explains it all god raises the dead because he's the source of life and so when he says he's the firstborn from the dead what that means is jesus christ entered the human race as a man he was both god and man in one person When he died, that was the element of his humanity that died, but God raised him from the dead, showing you that that sin which causes death is no longer the reigning order of creation. That now God who brings life is now the reigning order of creation, thus the firstborn from the dead. That is what he's saying. It's a matter, it's a, it's a discussion of authority. And then he says this, ruler, where does it say that? Ruler over the kings of the earth. Now what, what seems to escape us is that uh, he has to say that comment. You see, when Satan entered the realm of human dimension and tempted Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, what happened was that Adam and Eve were, they were the, um, designated custodians of the entire created world. And when they became loyal to Satan, what happened is they gave all of their inheritance over to Satan so that Satan became the ruler of this world. Now, I'm not making that up. Jesus even called them that. The ruler of this world has come. Now, what happened though was it was, it was theft. Satan had lied to Adam and Eve, and they they uh, Satan then stole their loyalties and stole their inheritance and stole all of them and 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 made him part of his domain, but reality, God, the Son of God, specifically made the earth, so it's his by creation, so he's really the rightful ruler and owner of all of this planet. But Satan has come in and has stolen and has corrupted it. That's the story. C.S. Lewis understood it well. Now, what he did was when Christ entered into the human race, and took on flesh and bone like you and I. He identified with the humanity of of our existence and then paid for our sins and rose again by the cross and resurrection. He defeated the one arrow that Satan had in his arsenal to put every one of us under the fear of, of his rulership called the fear of death. And I met many people who were afraid to die. Grabbing my arms, don't let me die, don't let me die. The fear of death is a strong motivator that it'll be loyal to the one who holds uh to 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 is, to is the the tyrant of your soul, but yet Christ comes in he defeats the, the one arrow, the one missile that that would held the chains over people's lives. Christ broke, and when he did that, when he did that he then. Able to take all those who are in the chains of the tyranny of Satan and now bring them over to the Son of the kingdom of his love. And thus Jesus has proven that he's the rightful heir of the entire world. Now, when he says ruler of the kings of the earth, that's what he's referring to. As it stands right now, although all the transaction of business has happened so that the paperwork is in order, if you will, Christ has not made it the time to physically come and seize the property that is his. What he's doing is having long suffering. So that instead of forcing mankind to break ties with the tyranny of Satan, he's inviting mankind to break the, ty- break from the tyranny of Satan and be with the son of his love. That's what's going on. So don't mistake the patience of God as a dereliction of duty as the rightful emperor of the world. No, 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 no. It's what we call the patience of God. You say, Steve, you're making this up. I am literally quoting to you. Second Thessalonians chapter three. I'm literally quoting them to you. So the question that we have to face today, as we introduce, get introduced to this 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 savior, is where do you stand in this sort of narrative of life, of existence, spiritually speaking? Where do you stand? I tell you where I stand. I stand as a boy when I was eight years old, and I saw Christ as my savior, and I received Him. And the next fifty years of my life. Have been in in his domain now Satan has tried to make me think that I made a, I was a dumb little boy that i didn 't know what I was doing. he tried to try to way waylay me all along the way, but I can tell you this: my God has never once forsaken me, nor you. That decision I made it stuck because the the communicator was faithful he was true now having said that to you let's let's just do a couple more phrases here okay it says to him who verse 5 who loved us and washed us from our sins that's that's why i went into that big description in order for all of this to happen and he can be the ruler of all or all the kings of the earth and all that stuff it required a payment for our sin. And the payment for our crimes, our felonies and misdemeanors, the payment for our rebellious spirit that shakes the fist at God, and says, "Leave me alone." That payment was not in gold, was not in silver, was not in some sort of some sort of uh, platinum or, or other commodity that you think has value. That was much greater than that. It was the value of a life lost. And when he uses this idea, who washed us for this blood, that's what it means. He, he shed his blood and in essence, pictorially, washed away our sins. And my friends, let me tell you, it wasn't because he had to. It's because he wanted to. That's what it means when it says, who loved us. Because of his love. You see, that's, that's what Satan's been lying about. Maybe he's been lying to you about it all of your days. Maybe, maybe you've, you've, you've thought God to be some type of fiend, somebody who's disinterested, somebody who, who who has no time for the human race, but the exact opposite is true. This is what John is saying, that God loved and therefore washed us with His blood. There's never been a moment in which God has not been interested in being in the midst of his beloved creation. And he's made it possible for one unique time in history. I invite you to know the Savior today. I invite you to receive him as your own. It is and will be and will stand as the best decision of your life. I know. I'm one of those who made that decision. You can call me fool, you can call me idiot, you can call me anything you want. But I know my Savior loves me and washed me from my sins. And you can't say anything against that. It's the truth. Now I want you to notice this, verse 6. He made us kings and priests to his God and Father. See that phrase? Now, the construction in the original language is subject to what they call textual criticism. Don't need to remember that phrase, it's on the test, though. Uh, Textual criticism is this idea of different, different manuscripts with different nuances to it. But I just want you to think about this. He made you nobility, right? And he made you, he made you, how do we say this? He made you uh, re- religiosity. He he made you nobility as kings, regalness, and then he made you somebody who could serve in the in the quarters where God dwells. That's a priest. It's not the guy with no collar. It's not the guy that has ribbons and robes and big tall hats. It's the people he saved, and he calls you with a title, with two titles that 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 are the highest of any sort of order. Kings and priests, those who attend the things of God and do it with regal, with regalness and nobility, the highest honor of both sections. This is how God sees you. This is what Christ has done for you. And he's done it in such a magnificent way that he has forever taken care of the sin problem so you'll never have a day when some old smoking gun or skeletons in the closet get unearthed and are shown to expose you for who you really are because Christ already knows who you really are and as he knew you, as he knew you as you really are, he still paid for all of your sins. And he makes you forever. The closest you can possibly be to God. God is king, is He not? So He makes you kings. God is intimately aware of all the things spiritual, so He makes you priests. That you can attend the things of God. Can you see what He means? He wants so badly to be with His people. People that He paid everything that heaven had to give a chance to be redeemed. That's the kind of God you have. That's who's being introduced in this first section. That's why I can't just gloss over it. I just can't run by it. But if we fail to see this as the revelation of Christ, we fail miserably to communicate the real message of the Word of God. So today, I give you two people. I give you John the servant. I give you Jesus the Savior. That savior, my savior. Notice in the last clause, it says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, when, uh, you know, when, when Jesus, our savior, When he redeems us, he moves us from a place of being under the tyranny of Satan over to be a subject of the kingdom of God. Those who then, with adoring, overwhelmed hearts, turn and give our praise and adoration, our worship to God himself. And you know what? God is finally put in his rightful place. Now, he could have demanded it. Oh, yeah, he could. have. He could have immediately squashed the human race and started all over if that's what he wanted to do. But you know what? He decided to go along with the decisions of his creature and formulate this massive meta-narrative to bring us back to a point where we have voluntarily now can give God, not because we have to, but because we want to, all of our affection. And there's nothing more glorious than that when a child turns out of the fullness of their heart and thanks their parent for all they've done. That's glorious. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you participate in that. And that's what we did the hour ago, remember? It wasn't just a cheap breakfast, was it? Not to me. It wasn't some sort of diet plan. Not to me. Those were divinely authorized mechanisms where Jesus Christ has given, that He has given us so that we might remember and give thanks. God is put in His rightful place. Is He put in your rightful pla- in His rightful place in your heart today? Maybe you don't know the Savior as you should. And maybe this is the first time you've ever heard of this. And maybe you've known the Savior for a long time. But he's not been been put in his rightful place in your heart. My friends, that's what these letters to to the churches are about. We better meet the author before we read the content. Let's pray. This week I need to ask you to do something. As your heads are bowed, I need you to read the first three chapters of Revelation over and over and over. Both today and or today's message and Wednesdays will cover chapter one. And Lord willing, next Sunday we'll cover uh, the church of Ephesus. Dear Father, we've come to you at this hour, not because we're worthy, That's because your son is worthy and he did what I could never do. Saved me from my disease of sin. I just want to say thank you. Thank you, oh my father. I agree with what my brother read earlier today among whom I am the chief of sinners. The example was not Paul. The example was Christ. And I think every one of us in this room can articulate that in fullest measure. And we would just, if we could just say one thing, oh God, thank you. Glory be to our Father for great things he has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.